Hello, sword people, and welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Today's episode is your October challenge. Now, these challenges are an idea I had when thinking about New Year's resolutions. I really don't like New Year's resolutions. And it struck me that there was an opportunity for self-development and self-improvement that we were kind of missing by making these kind of nebulous resolutions at pretty much the worst point in the year to make any kind of changes because it's right after Christmas. It's usually the middle of, well, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's in the middle of winter. It's just not a great time to be trying to make some kind of resolution that's going to last the whole year. So... Instead, we have a different challenge every month. The challenges so far have been how to break a habit, then adding a habit, and these should have been the other way around. It's easier to add a habit than it is to break one. Um, But I didn't think the whole thing through thoroughly. I just sort of got cracking, as is my usual habit. See what I did there? Now, uh, that was followed by prioritizing sleep, and then prioritizing food, then learning a new skill, and that sort of gets you into the, uh, well, you're, you're rested and well-nourished and you know how to break habits and add habits and how to learn. So then we had a look at stamina followed by strength. And last month's challenge was range of motion. And those of you who have been following along with my train along morning exercise sessions uh, will be deeply familiar with what it means to really prioritize range of motion in your workouts. If you want to have a look back at all of those monthly challenges, you can go to guywindsor.net forward slash blog and just search for monthly challenges. They should all be listed under a category called monthly challenges. Now, your challenge this month is to improve your footwork. And I've borrowed this from my new book, The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, which you should definitely go and buy. Of course, you can find it at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. So without further ado, every able-bodied student I've ever taught could walk across the room to shake hands with a stranger without stumbling, missing, getting awkwardly close or stretching out their hand from absurdly far away. The disabled students could all manage it too, though not necessarily by walking. When considering proper footwork, it's worth remembering that you can already judge distance, adjust your paces as necessary, and get to the right place at the right time in familiar contexts. The key to mastering martial arts footwork is to experience it as a natural solution to an understood problem. The footwork is never the point. Hitting your opponent without getting hit is the point. All good footwork has some qualities in common. You are in perfect balance, moving smoothly, moving efficiently, moving gracefully. I have never encountered a martial art that prized clumsiness except when fate to fool the opponent. As a general rule, the instructions that have produced the best footwork in my students are silent feet, if you can hear your feet, something's wrong. You can stamp your feet deliberately, such as in an appell, but normal steps make no sound. If your foot hits the ground hard by accident or unconsciously, it's a clear indication that you are not in control of your weight transfer, and in the moment of contact, you are completely stuck. Next, 
weight stays at the same level. If you were to plot the movement of your center of mass, it would remain at the same height all the time. The feeling is that your limbs are free to move around the still center. I often demonstrate this with star jumps, really fast, though my waist barely moves. If a student is having difficulty with this in a footwork drill, I might give them a kettlebell to hold. Suddenly the up and down component feels like too much work, so they just stop doing it. And lastly, freedom. The point of the mechanics of a martial art is to make it easier to defeat your opponent, never just to make things more difficult. If your neurology allowed you to learn to walk, then you should be able to master at least some variation on the fundamental movements of your art. Capoeira may be an exception to this, but if the art is generally used with both feet on the ground, it should be just fine. When students are having problems with any of these three things, I usually get them to just walk normally and work on the attributes while walking. Once they have a feeling for walking smoothly on silent feet with freedom, they can then apply that feeling with the footwork actions they were having trouble with. Martial arts footwork is always adapted to specific tactical goals. Its purpose is to get us to the right place at the right time to strike safely. This may involve avoiding the opponent's weapons, adjusting our measure and power generation. The specific footwork techniques preferred by your art will depend on the doctrine, strategy and tactics of your art. This includes aesthetic and social choices. In his 1798 masterwork, The Art of Defense on Foot, Charles Roweth famously wrote that traversing is preferred by many to retiring because it has not so much the appearance of suffering a defeat. A traverse, incidentally, is a sidestep. Retiring is stepping straight backwards. The main footwork actions in all styles are some variation on the following options. You will almost invariably have one foot forward or the other, and your steps can therefore be done in the following ways. Forwards or backwards without changing the lead foot. Examples include Fiore's Accressory and Discressory, Modern Fencing's Step. Forwards or backwards changing the lead foot. These are passing steps. Examples include Fiore's Passare, forwards, and Tornare, backwards. They can be done bringing the other side of the body forwards or keeping the body in the same relation to the opponent as before. Side steps without changing the lead foot. Examples include Capoferro's Scanso del Piedrito and the traversing steps common in La Verdadera Destreza, the Spanish rapier system. Side steps changing the lead foot. Examples include Capoferro's Scanso de la Vita and many cases of Fiore's Paso a la Traversa. Lunging, a step forwards of only the lead foot. The classic example is, of course, the lunge, as shown by Capoferro. When stepping without a change of lead, the hips tend to remain in the same relationship to the feet. When stepping with a change of lead, the hips may turn relative to the feet. Fiore calls these mezza volta, the half turn. In most cases, the weight will change from one foot to the other, the primary exception being the steps forward or backwards without a change of lead. You can also shift your weight from one foot to the other without stepping and with or without a turn of the hips. In its linear form, Capoferro's strike in single tempo of the fixed foot would be a good example. In its turning form, Fiore's Volta Stabile fits the bill. Finally, you can turn on a single foot, which is really a kind of passing step, though the weight stays on the same foot while the other turns around it. Fiore's Tuta Volta is an example of this. Many combat sports have a practice of bouncing forwards and backwards, basically doing little jumps. Olympic fencing champion Johann Harmenberg explains the reasons in depth and detail in his superb book, Epe 
It does serve a useful purpose, but I've only ever seen it in competitive sports, never in a martial art intended for mortal combat. Some arts do include a jump in which both feet leave the ground. Whenever a foot leaves the ground, it might kick, so I would file all kicking actions under footwork too. Every kick I've ever seen fits one of the categories above. Many arts include some kind of floor diagram for mapping footwork actions. In historical martial arts, the most famous is probably Achille Marozzo's star in his 1536 book Opera Nova, or the Destreza Circle. Many arts describe a triangle step. The image I use to store my footwork concepts is a triangle inside a circle inside a square. We can step forwards, back, to the side, around, and at an angle. The real question is, why would you step? What does it give you? Let me start by destroying a common myth. Stepping, as in moving a foot, does not ever add power to a blow. This is easily tested with any power-striking practice such as hitting the tire with a sword or a stick, or indeed cutting down a tree with an axe. You will always get the most power with both feet on the ground, driving the blow with the flexion of both legs and turning the hips. As soon as you take a foot off the ground, you lose half of the driving force. The additional speed you get from stepping is a tiny, tiny fraction of the speed the weapon gets from the mechanics of correct striking, and conveys vastly less power than is lost by disconnecting one foot from the ground. The illusion of the step adding power usually comes from delaying the strike until after the moving foot has touched the ground. Don't take my word for it. Test it. There are two components to footwork getting to the right place and being able to do the required action, usually a strike. Standing in exactly the right place but being unable to strike is no use. Being able to strike but being in the wrong place to do so is also useless. There are three main components to this. The first is measure. This is the distance between you and your opponent. Are you close enough to strike? Are they? The second is structure. I might be standing behind you close enough to strike, but if I'm off balance or my sword is in the wrong place, I still can't hit you. While I'm sorting myself out to strike, you have time to move. And thirdly, direction. We may be close enough to strike, but if I'm standing behind you, I can hit you with my sword, but you can't hit me with yours. I'd better watch out for a back kick, though. These principles are interconnected. You might be structured to strike in one direction, but not another. You may be able to strike in the right direction, but be too far away. The correct footwork in any situation other than pure avoidance, such as running away, puts you close enough to strike, pointed in the right direction, and able to strike. In a perfect world, you'll be in such a spot that your opponent can't strike back, but in swordsmanship at least, that is often accomplished with blade relationship, my sword is in the way of theirs, rather than just the footwork. Tactical problems arise when one or more of these components is not correct. Proper footwork is the solution to all of these problems. I should also mention here the principle of initiation. What moves first? In European swordsmanship systems, it is axiomatic that the sword should move first. As one 15th century German manuscript puts it, the sword should move as if there were a rope tied to the end of your sword and somebody pulled on it. George Silver, in his 1599 work Paradoxes of Defence, insists that the hand should move before the body or the feet. The reason for this is that if I step into measure and then strike, you can hit me as I arrive, but before my strike begins. But there are circumstances where this is not true. For instance, if we are already in contact, I might want to move my foot first, then shift my weight onto it. I'll discuss this in more detail when we look at striking practice later in the book. Now I'm perfectly well aware, 
that you don't have the book in your hand, you're listening to a podcast episode. But that's okay. You can get the book at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. To continue then. The eight directions. Direction describes the relative vectors of your momenta. In other words, where is your opponent going, along what line, and how does that intersect with your own direction of movement? Is their weight moving in a linear or circular fashion, along the line of direction or at a diagonal? And how are you moving? Against a static opponent, you can only strike. It is usually impossible to apply locks, limb destructions, or throws against someone who is standing still. Abnormal differences in strength or passivity on the part of your opponent changes this, of course. Most close quarters techniques, for example, require you to use your opponent's momentum to apply the force. Without command of the directions, it is impossible to reliably control distance and therefore timing. The zero point where these directions intersect depends on the type of footwork you are doing. It can be your centre of gravity or your opponent's, the centre of your front foot, even the midpoint on the line of direction. These directions need to be named. Some martial arts instructors use north, south, etc. I used to until my Finnish students complained that it was hard enough being taught in English without such non-standard use of normal words. There are, of course, an infinite number of possible directions. The purpose of restricting yourself to eight is twofold. Firstly, all attacks close distance, whatever direction it comes from. Assuming that the fences are facing each other, the attack must shorten the line of direction. Even if they are attacking you on the diagonal, they must still close distance. This is oversimplified, but for the purposes of getting a basic idea about how direction relates to distance, imagine that all attacks are coming from long range along the line of direction. In response to this hypothetical attack, you have nine useful footwork options. One, you can close directly going forwards. This puts you in range for grappling or pommeling. Two, you can close in diagonally going front right. This puts you in blade range of their body. Two, you can close in diagonally going front left. This also puts you in blade range of their body. Four, you can sidestep left. This puts you in blade range of their sword arm. Five, you can sidestep right. This also puts you in blade range of their sword arm. Six, you can step back, keeping them at a distance. Seven, you can step diagonally back left, keeping them at a distance and forcing them to change direction before they can redouble their attack. Eight, you can step diagonally back right, also keeping them at a distance and forcing them to change direction before they can redouble their attack. And nine, you can stand your ground. If you step in a direction that is between any of the eight, say front front right, for example, you do not close the range enough for grappling or pommeling and are too close to use the blade effectively. In other words, command of direction is one of the key tools that allows you to effectively command distance. In practically all combat situations, the only useful options will involve one or more of the eight directions. In addition, careful practice of the eight directions will allow you to understand intuitively the directional components of your opponent's attacks. You will then be able to judge where they are going and what are the useful responses. There is also the aspect of general control. If you confine yourself to the eight directions in practice, you will become accustomed to being very precise about where you step, so you will eventually be able to put yourself wherever you want. We should also discuss footwear. When you consider the complex structures of bones, muscles, ligaments and nerves in your feet, representing a highly evolved and sophisticated mechanical device for moving you around at various speeds, it's really extraordinary how we bundle them up in these thick padded boxes and expect them to work properly. Learning footwork with thick padded shoes on is like learning music through earmuffs or learning to play the piano while wearing boxing gloves. 
If the weather and the floor allows it, the best footwear to learn in is none at all. But, and this is a very big but, if your feet are accustomed to shoes, then the muscles will have atrophied and the tendons, ligaments and fascia will have deteriorated through neglect. It will take time to build them back up, so keep a pair of shoes handy for when your feet get tired. If you rush into things, you'll injure yourself. I am often teaching in cold climates, and it is often not hygienic to go barefoot, so I train in thin-soled shoes with no internal architecture or padding whatsoever. Medieval-style shoes were my entry point, but they wear out very quickly, so I often use shoes such as the Vibram five-finger shoes, soft-style shoes, Freet, and Vivo Barefoot. I only wear a thick-soled shoe for safety reasons, such as in a forge, or when walking through ice and snow. In the 16th century, the open stirrup was adopted, which meant that knights and other wealthy folks started to wear shoes with a built-up heel to prevent the foot slipping through the stirrup. This was critically important because horses scare easily, and if you fall off and your foot is caught in the stirrup, you will be dragged until the horse stops. This is often fatal. With the rich and famous swanking around in heeled shoes, the fashion spread to everyone. Putting a heel on a shoe gives you a bit of extra height and tilts your pelvis forward in a fashionable way. It shortens the calf, giving your leg a bit of extra curve. It wasn't that long before men were tottering about on ridiculous three-inch heels. Remember that tight stockings and high heels were male fashion until quite recently, and that the most ludicrously stupid ideas can still become fashionable. The widespread adoption of the heel was driven partly by the fact that it was cheap to do, like buying a Ferrari keyring for your Ford car key. But this means that by the end of the 1500s, most men had heels on their shoes, in Europe anyway, and so many of the dueling styles were fought in heeled shoes. Women's feet were generally obscured by their skirts, so they kept flat shoes. Even at the height of the heel craze, such as the late 18th century, fencing was practiced in thin-soled shoes, much like a modern ballet shoe. In the illustrations to Domenico Angelo's small-soled treatise, The School of Fencing, translated from the French 1763 edition by his son Harry, we see the combatants dressed for the street with modest heels on their shoes. But in Thomas Rowlandson's etching of Harry Angelo's training hall at the Haymarket in 1787 or so, we see the fencers wearing minimalist slippers. Sir William Hope advises in his new short and easy method of fencing from 1707, I must tell you, by the way, that nothing prevents the slipping of a man's feet better than the chalking of the soles of them well with a piece of good chalk when he is to thrust at his full stretch and that perhaps the floor of the school or his shoes are slippery. This will assist him to stand firm, not only before he offers to thrust, but also when he is making of his full lunge. Other than damage caused by preventing the foot from moving properly under strain, and the obvious risks of training on irregular or otherwise dangerous surfaces, your choice of footwear and the ground you train on matter, because too much friction or not enough both cause accidents. Slipping and falling is not good, but neither is having your foot stuck to the ground when you need it to turn, and so twisting your ankle or your knee. As always, there is no one universally correct answer to the question, what should I wear on my feet? It will depend on your foot health, the weather, the surface you are practicing on, and the styles you intend to train. Natural footwork. Let us consider the most basic footwork of all, walking, running, and sprinting. The unassisted human body has these three fundamentally distinct gates, which subject you to different levels of force. When walking, we generally step out with the leg extended, the heel of the foot touches the ground and our weight rolls from there onto the ball of the foot, then through the toes to spring forwards. 
On contact with the ground, the foot receives a force about equal to your body weight. One foot or the other is always on the ground. When we accelerate to running, our weight comes up and forwards over the ball of the foot, and as we reach out the foot, we arrive on the ball of the foot and roll onto the toes. This is often a somewhat shorter step than when walking. Because of the speed, this usually involves about double the forces in play when walking. Both feet leave the ground. When sprinting, the knees pump up and down much more, and we drive the toes into the ground. This generates about triple the forces when walking, and both feet leave the ground. The foot acts as a shock absorber, storing and releasing energy. The greater the forces involved, the more of the foot we need between our ankle and the ground at the moment of impact. You can feel the differences with a simple experiment. Now, if you're listening to this podcast in your car, wait until you get somewhere safe to stop, get out of your car before you try this. It's really funny considering the differences between the requirements of reading a podcast and reading a book. Standing upright, moving only in the ankle, lift your heels an inch or two off the ground, raising your whole body that amount. Then drop down and feel the impact. Start gently. This is very uncomfortable for most people. Now shift your weight forwards to the ball of the foot and jump up and down, both feet leaving the ground but not by much. Feel where on the foot you naturally want to land. Now jump as high as you can, lifting your knees to your chest and land naturally. Notice which part of your foot you naturally arrive on. Most of the time in martial arts, we are using a modified walking gait. Running is quite unusual and sprinting is very rare. Whenever we step so far that we are obliged to arrive on the heel, you should be moving with a walking gait. For specific footwork exercises and ideas, see guywindsor.net forward slash footwork. And of course, for more details about the Windsor Method, the book from which this excerpt has come, you need to go to guywindsor.net forward slash solo. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of footwork. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And of course, you can find the book at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. While you are there on my website, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. And in all seriousness, a little while ago, I was thinking about quitting the podcast simply because it's so much work. And it was seeing my patrons and their enthusiastic support and appreciation for the show that made me decide, no, you know what I need to do? I need to contact a bunch of more interesting people and interview them. And so for the last week or two, I have been interviewing people pretty much back to back. It's been great. So don't worry, the show will go on. You can join us and become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Milo Thurston, an old friend of mine from DDS days who is very well known for his um, interpretations of, for example, Sir William Hope's new method, an excerpt of which or, or a quote from which was in this very podcast. And in fact, when I couldn't find the reference, I emailed Milo and he very kindly sent it to me. So Milo and I have been friends a long time. He's also very well known as a Napoleonic War reenactor. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. 
while you're there, please do rate the show or even leave a review. And of course, if you know someone who is struggling with their footwork and you think this episode might help, please do send it to them directly. There is nothing better for spreading the word than a personalized word of mouth recommendation. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.